0: Every Sunday we come here not just to worship, but to remember. And I use the word remember in terms of its opposite, to dismember. And we all know what dismember typically refers to. It's to be cut off from something. Well, friends, it's very possible that in the last six or seven days you have been cut off from the very hope that this worship service is out to remind you of. That's why we do it, for one among other reasons, to remember. And this Sunday, as you've already heard, quite evidently, we're here to remember a particular moment in history when Jesus walks into Jerusalem on a fateful but triumphant day to great fanfare. We remember that, and it could not be a more fitting remembrance in light of the passage that we're about to hear from Jesus' lips from an earlier moment in his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount. Because in four verses of the Sermon on the Mount we're going to listen to today, there are four things that sound like they have absolutely no relationship to one another. If they had been four answers on the game of Jeopardy, they would have been under the category of potpourri. So you think when you first hear them. But after a lot of head scratching and a lot of help from other people who are scholars and commentators like David Martin Lloyd-Jones, it turns out that what Jesus has to say in these four sayings, I'll have one idea. And that one theme, that one idea, is one big reason why Jesus walks into that room, or that into that city to great fanfare, and then ends up leaving that city on a cross. And it's because he's out to address one thing that is our greatest affliction. There is one thing in us that no one has to be taught how to cultivate, that leaps Into action at a moment's notice without warning, without provocation. And most of the time when it's out to assert itself or protect itself or defend itself. It does more harm than good. It puts more estrangement between one another than it brings the hope of reconciliation. And that thing is the preservation and the assessment and the fixation on ourself. It is our greatest and deepest affliction. Most of the things I regret in my life, most of the sins I have committed in my history are mostly against the people I love the most. And they all have to do with one thing. I think I'm more important. And I bet I'm not alone. It is our deepest affliction. And every one of these things that Jesus has to say to us in these four passages is out to address that deepest affliction, that deepest obsession and so what we're going to hear in these four passages that may not sound like they go together are four marks of a heart that's being healed of its obsession of self four marks of a heart becoming healed but also one key to its healing four marks of healing one key to it that's what we're going to hear And that's where we're going to find out why Jesus would come into Jerusalem that week. And boy, if you think I'm going to camp on this for a while, you bet I will. You're going to hear this today. You're going to hear this Good Friday. You're going to hear this on Easter Sunday. The problem is the same. The remedy is what we need. If you're able to stand, would you hear what he has to say about ourselves? Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you to take your tunic, give him your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the pointed word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Something gets lost in the shuffle. It's very possible when we pull these out on a Palm Sunday, and and you've heard me say this last Palm Sunday, and I'll probably just say it every Palm Sunday. What they were doing here was not having a parade, that was political theater. These are more than branches. These were, in that moment, placards. Because when Jesus walks into that town, on that donkey, he's making a statement without saying a word. And everybody's thinking, finally, he's the one we've been waiting for. The regime that's been in place for way too long, and has been occupying us for God knows how long, that one needs to go, and he's come to ascend the throne He's the one we've been waiting for. And so when they're saying Jesus is Lord, you know what they're saying? Also, Caesar isn't. And it's that kind of sentiment that was beginning to pervade the populace that gets Jesus killed. It was political for that to be waving branches. But when they say it's political, friends, it's also personal. Because when we say that Jesus is Lord, then you and I are also saying, guess what? You're not. I'm not. And that is the hardest thing we will ever hear. And the one thing that takes the longest to ever learn and to abide by. And therefore, all of these texts, all of these sayings linked together are threaded through with that idea that Jesus Jesus is in fact Lord. And you and I are not. And so he wants to give us a picture of what it looks to believe that he is Lord and that we are not. He wants to give us four pictures of what a heart looks like that is being healed of its obsession of self. And so he begins that little canvas, if you will, that painting of that kind of heart by first speaking to what does a heart look like when it's being provoked? And he, in similar fashion, will quote something that everybody in the audience is already familiar with. He'll quote a passage that is mentioned in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And he'll say, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The idea in those laws being that there is punishment and that punishment will fit the offense That there'll be equanimity between if there is a crime, if there is harm, then any kind of judgment that might be meted out will be in the same ballpark as the harm. That's the way it is. And when you and I hear that in 2019, we go, how beastly. Because haven't we driven through Asheville and it's seen at least one time the bumper sticker that says, if I live with an eye for an eye, then the whole world will turn blind. Anybody seen that bumper sticker? Anybody have that bumper sticker? <laughs> you know what? It's true. You play by that rule. You're right. You can end up plucking everybody's eyes out. But, but you've got to hear that bumper sticker. The bumper sticker is taken out of the context in which that law was originally stated. Do you know the context in which that law comes up? How it worked then in the, in the ancient world? If you looked at somebody wrong who had more power than you, you got your head cut off. Ask John the Baptist. All he did was call out King Herod for sleeping with the wrong person. And he got his head handed to him. Literally. What this law presupposes is that there is this thing called accountability. That where you wreak a harm, where you bring a harm, you commit an offense There is accountability for that. There is this thing called justice. But for him to say there's an eye for an eye, the law also implies this, that if you are going to commit an offense and if there will be justice, it has to be without passion. You don't put the rendering of justice in just anybody's hands and you sure don't put it in the hands of the one who has been offended. Look, I'm a parent. I know why that law would be in effect. All they have to do is rub me wrong on a bad day and I'm ready to hang them on a hook. Well, imagine if somebody really did you wrong and you're having a bad day. In this world, we think we're so enlightened, but all you have to do is in some places make one drug offense and you end up behind bars for years. In this world, all you got to do is say one stupid tweet and you lose your job, you lose your career, you lose your network, you lose your reputation. Oh, if I for an eye were really in effect in the modern world. That's the circumstance, that's the context that Jesus is speaking to. And as you have begun to get into his rhythm over the last several weeks, he puts that out there, and then he comes with a, all right, you've heard that, however. And let's just all be really clear here. For Jesus to quote the Old Testament law and then say, but I say to you, friends, you and I think that's like he's just being a teacher. Anybody say something like that, they're putting themselves in a place of authority, that really will get him killed. And who you are you? And who are you with? And can I see your resume? But what does he say? I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one as well. And we hear that and we go, what? What? Yeah, not only what, but Why? Why, if we are being treated in that way, would we respond in that way? Well, let's look really carefully about the scenario that Jesus is picturing here. One is slapped on the right cheek, and you might think, Oh my gosh, this guy's trying to beat somebody else up. Wrong. To be slapped on the cheek is not for someone out to disable you. It's out to defame you. It's out to discredit you. It's out to make you look like a fool. It's out to besmirch your reputation. And what are your options in a moment when somebody is out to defame you? You've got two options that come to your mind at first. One of which is to fight. The other one is to flee. You do that to me, I will make you hurt. I will retaliate. You do that to me, I'm afraid of you. I'm going to retreat in my corner and retreat in shame. Those are the first two things that might come to my mind. And some of it may depend on how you're feeling that day. Some of that may depend on your temperament. But you know what Jesus is saying? In that moment, neither of those options work. A heart that is healed in me, that believes that Jesus is Lord and I am not, will not opt for retaliation and will not opt for retreat. It will opt for something else put really beautifully by a a 20th century uh, Jewish woman who became a Christian and became a philosopher named Simone Weil. She said this once, uh, don't just do something, stand there. What is she getting at? What is Jesus getting at? When your honor has been injured, you will either think about retaliating or you will either think about removing yourself. But with Jesus to say, stand there, turn the other cheek to them, make yourself vulnerable before them, what you're saying is, I refuse to escalate this moment. But I also refuse to retreat in shame. And when we are forced, when we do that, what our offender is forced to do is to see us. To see what they've done. To see the harm they cause. To consider clearly us standing there, in their midst, Before them. Why would we do that? What good does that do? Is it out to prove our strength? No. It's not about you again. It's not about your ability to withstand blows. Here's what it's about. Dietrich Bonhoeffer on this comment, on this uh, text, uh, put it this way. Evil will become powerless when it finds no opposing object, no resistance, but instead is willingly born and suffered. Evil meets an opponent for which it is not a match. Someone tries to take you down and you stand there, if you will, whether it's actually or metaphorically, I don't care. You are saying to them, go for it. Give me your best shot. I want you to see what this is. I want you to consider really anew what you've done and why you think it was necessary for you to go there. If you want to take a really potent example of how that that very posture, that very stance had potency and impact on a culture Just rewind it 50 years to the civil rights movement. There's a Baptist pastor in China this week that was convicted of state subversion. Not the one I told you about several weeks ago. This one's a Baptist pastor. Convicted last week. And you know what he did in the doc, in his testimony, before they sentenced him? He quoted Martin Luther King Jr., And last week, we remember the 51st anniversary of his assassination. But Martin Luther King Jr. put it like this about why we might walk in this way of neither retaliating nor retreating. He said this, if I respond to hate with reciprocal hate, I do nothing but intensify the cleavage in a broken community. I can only close the gap by meeting hate with love. Jesus is not saying turn the other cheek as an act of defiance in the way of saying, I hate you. It's actually an act of defiance that says, you mean more to me than this. And that's powerful, and that's counterintuitive, and nobody does that. And yet Jesus and Bonhoeffer and MLK will say, when you avoid escalation, this is what's possible. There's a possibility for peace. There's a possibility for reconciliation. Um, Several years ago, in a neighborhood my family and I used to live in in Texas, um, my kids were much younger, and we were invited to a Christmas party in our neighborhood. And um, we'll just say that the the house was really bedecked and festooned with... A, that's the words we pull out of the attic at Christmas, right? Um, bedecked and festooned with all sorts of um, with decorations. It was as if Hobby Lobby threw up in the living room. <laughs> oh, so you've been to places like that. I mean, everything's around there, and, and everything's at... You know, ground level to the ceiling. Well, um, one of my kids, who shall remain nameless, uh, became enamored with one of the objects there and picked it up. And as children are wont to do, squeezed it and it broke. All right. So he fesses up. Not really. He just sort of walks over <laughs> and um, and we go, oh no! And we look at the host. Oh no, we're so sorry. And, and she and so we leave for the party. Well, the next day on the on the community facebook page for the whole neighborhood the host of the party writes you know if you're going to bring children to a party you really should keep better supervision of them
1: <laughs>
0: how shall we respond we could have been silent oh we could have fought fire with fire my wife writes back for everybody to see i'm so sorry that happened we really he just got out of our hand, oops he he just got out of our sight <laughs> down to two now. Um, (laughs) He just got out of our sight. I'm so sorry. Please help us know how we can pay for it. We'll do it by tomorrow. My wife's outside the next day um, um, working or doing something on the lawn and some guy just drives up out of his car. We never met, gets out of his car, walks up to my wife and shakes her hand. He says, I saw what you did there and I want to meet somebody like that because I never would have responded to him like that. And my wife wanted me to tell you that's the only time she's ever done that. But in a moment when somebody was out to defame her or us or whatever it, you you have an option. You have multiple options. And one is to say, I'll stand here and take that. Because maybe there's a chance that there might be something new forged between us. That's a long point. But it's probably the most important one, and that's why they'll take the longest. The rest of them kind of follow suit. A mark of a heart that's being healed, if you haven't heard already, is the way it responds to someone who means you no good and actually does you no good in the moment. But another mark of that heart that is being healed has everything to do when someone is in a dispute with you about stuff. And in verse 40, it's almost kind of a bizarre kind of scenario that Jesus is envisioning. It's a courtroom scene, and somebody is, is, is suing you for your tunic. All right, um, here's a little first century fashion update. In the first century, you had two garments. You had the tunic, that's your skivvies, that's your underwear, and then you had a cloak. That was your outer garment. And this scenario that Jesus envisions is somebody that's taking you to court and for whatever reason says, uh, that tunic is mine, I want it back. And Jesus says, if they ask for that, tell you what, give them the cloak too. In other words, Jesus is saying, go for the full Monty here. <laughs> yeah, you saw that. <laughs> full naked. Now that's a bizarre sort of situation. And surely Jesus is working in sort of a fantasy, fanciful kind of situation. But I think he has to make a very important point with a very bracing image. How do you respond To someone who is making an unfair demand of you. You make an even more costly concession, he says. What? Why? Why respond to an unfair demand with an even more costly concession? Because in that moment, he's trying to shift everybody's focus off of ourselves. He's trying to shift our focus off the rights to our property and instead shift our focus to the relationships over which the property has a problem with. Both my father and my aunt are dead, but when my mother died 32 years ago, I remember distinctly, I'm 15, my father and my aunt get into a dispute, and argument about who was going to take some of my mother's stuff after she died. And that argument lingered for days after her funeral, and they never spoke to each other again. Because what's happening in that moment, it's no longer about the stuff, it's about me. It's our natural inclination. Jesus is saying, when our stuff becomes more important than people, we've lost something important. And that's why Jesus will say earlier, as you heard when Ben preached about anger, he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser before you're going with him to court. Get reconciled with the person who's accusing you before you get the authorities involved. It's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, I can't believe you Christians are suing each other in court. You have resources at your disposal. You have humility at your disposal in order to work this out. But you don't have to go to court. Stop making the thing so important. What he's saying is, what they are to us will always be important, more important than what they are seeking from us, even if it's unjustly. That's a heart being healed when you look past the thing or the idea And you give more attention to the other one, no matter how unkindly or unjustly they are acting. The third mark of a heart that is being healed, Jesus puts in the context of the very thing that everybody was despising about the week that Jesus entered in Jerusalem, and it was the one thing that they were all hoping would change overnight, and that was the Roman occupation of the promised land. See, if Rome occupies your country, they call the shots. And so there was this thing called impressment. That if you're a Roman soldier and you need to get somewhere, and you saw an Israelite with a donkey, or if they were really rich, a chariot, you could say, I need that for a while. Take me somewhere. You know, kind of like the cop shows. You know, the cops lose their car. They show up and they say, police, I need your car. Does that that really happen? I don't know. Rust, does that ever happen? If cops came to me in my minivan, they would say, "Free, forget it, we'll walk. In that moment, the Roman occup yes, it's true check the wheels. Um, the Roman occupiers would say, "That's ours. We'll take that. And in that moment, if you're an Israelite who despises Roman, you could say, "Stick it." In which case you're dead, but in that moment, you might think to yourself, "I shall do no such thing." And Jesus saying, "If a Roman soldier says, "Go with me one mile, go with him two miles." If, if the Roman soldier says, I need to get home to Jerusalem, would you take me to the outskirts? He's saying to the Israelite, don't just take him to the outskirts. Take him to his front door. Now, how does that apply to us? If you have a really frustratingly annoying, curmudgeonly, ugly boss, none of you on staff blink an eye. <laughs> watching you cone. You have a really curmudgeonly boss that says, I need you to work a few more hours on this project. You could say to yourself, it's not part of my job description, and under your breath, and you're a jerk. Instead, the kind of sentiment that Jesus is imagining is that you would say, I'll work on that until it's done. In a moment like that, Jesus is saying, look, I know that there are plenty of moments in which people for whom you have no respect ask much of you. And your inclination would be to say, I will only do for you what I absolutely have to do and nothing else. And Jesus is saying, you know what a heart is being healed of? A heart is being healed of your self-fixation it is that kind of heart. In each one of these three I've talked about so far, there's a running theme and it's this. Jesus is asking us all. Jesus is showing us what a heart that is healed is this. is to think more of those who think less of us. To see the one who harms us as not just their harm, but who they are. To see the one who is asking of me unfairly and to see them more than the thing that they're asking me of. To see the one who is frustrating and annoying in what they're asking of me and to actually forget the interpersonal strife and find it as an opportunity to serve them. In every one of those situations, he is saying a healed heart of self is the one who thinks more of those who think less of us. And that will explain then the last of his sayings here. What does it mean to have a heart that's being healed when somebody lays their desperate need before you? He says, give to the one who asks of you and do not refuse the one who begs from you. There's all sorts of poverty in this world. There's all sorts of need in this world that comes from all sorts of sectors and quarters, and they come at you at lightning speed. And in moments like that, you are inclined to respond in two different ways. One, as a matter of discomfort. You see the guy on the corner, usually with a dog. He is adopted along the way, and you feel sorry for him. And so you go to Chick-fil-A or wherever you go. You get him french fries. You bring it back. You lay at his feet. You say, here you go. I know you might be hungry. And they go, thank you. And then you drive off, and you go, glad that's over. Now, it's good that you gave. It's good that we thought of them. And yet, what's primarily driving your whole situation is that you just don't want to feel bad about it anymore. That's discomfort. The other option is disdain. You see somebody in that kind of strife, that kind of plight, and maybe your first thought is, what, what, what litany of dumb choices have you made across the years that have put you here in that moment? And you say, forget it. You made your own bed. You're going to sleep in it. Jesus says, neither of those were... Give to whomever begs from you and do not refuse the one who asks from you. Now, people will hear that and commentators anticipate your objections to hear they say, You mean give them anything that they want? Isn't that the problem? They've been propped up in so many ways and they're still in their plight. And that's why they make this important observation of what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. He doesn't say, give whatever they ask. He says, give to whomever is in need. And what that means is, is much different from just saying, give them their laundry list of everything. It's actually saying, consider the who in whatever it is that they're asking. In other words, the only way that we can really be of help to them is to know their story. To be faithfully present to them in such a way that it is an opportunity to give, not just an obligation that we have to subscribe to. In every one of these situations, what Jesus is painting for us is a mark of a heart that does not seek to protect, defend, assert, preserve itself at all costs. In every single one of them, you heard implicitly Jesus saying, here's what you and I are up against in every one of these scenarios. You and I are up against thinking, it's my stuff. It's my reputation. It's my time. It's my resources. And she's saying, oh my gosh, you're in the tyranny of your own preservation. You don't see it. You know what captures the heart that is being healed and all of these four scenarios really beautifully in one scene? From this moment early that you probably already know and probably could even repeat back to me verbatim. It's that scene early in Les Miserables when Jean Valjean, prisoner 24601, has been... um, paroled after living in prison for stealing a loaf of bread and he's got nothing and he's got nowhere to go and who takes him in but a priest the priest feeds him gives him lodging gives his clothing and how does Jean Valjean respond with gratitude by getting up in the middle of the night stealing his silver and walking off in the middle of the night and in this moment the way the priest responds to him sets the tone for the rest of that story and the rest of Valjean's
1: life Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madam, you know, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you.
0: slapped him on the left cheek he slapped him in his heart because he met his benevolence with ingratitude he not didn't beg for more he actually just stole off into the night with it and in that moment that priest had a choice would he be angry and defend himself and his reputation and his honor and his stuff Or we let it go and that there's actually something much greater in this presence, in this view, than just what I might want to ordinarily defend. That moment sets the tone for the rest of that story and sets the tone for the rest of Valjean's life. And friends of mine, that kind of story has to set the tone for all of our life. But it doesn't come out of a work of fiction. It comes out of a moment of history that began on this day in Jerusalem. Because there was a moment when somebody got struck. And he was silent as a sheep before his shearers. There was one who hung on a cross who they cast lots for his tunic and took everything that he had. And there was a moment when he withheld nothing that was his. Why? So that we might be his. The more you and I believe that we have been forgiven and that we are now held by God with the light. The more we will let go of trying to hold ourselves. That's the good news and that's the story I'm sticking with and that's the story I'll tell you every Sunday and every chance I have. It's the only story I've got. But a heart that would be healed and a world that will be healed that will stop being so fixated on itself and its own identity that it would define for itself instead will allow the one who was kind, who took the blow, who died for us, We'll let him tell us who we are. And the more we believe that, the more we will find a different way to respond to those and to think more of them, even though they think less of us. That's great news, and that's freedom. Let's pray. If it's true, sir, that you have ransomed us from despair. If it's true that everything that we despise about ourselves and what we've done and how we respond without hesitation, if that in fact is forgiven and will not be what keeps us from your love. If it is true that you love us so much that you would be angry about the things that we are doing to kill ourselves earlier in your love. Then, Father, help us to believe that it is by the strength of your Spirit that you give in the wake of the blood of your Son that would allow us not to hold so tightly to what we think is the only thing we have, ourselves, and instead hold more tightly to the one who gave us ourselves. Let it be.